Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bunch of Apes podcast. Um, I was delighted enough to be talking to my guest today before we even started. He's just told me that he's got some exclusive information he can give me. Welcome to Chris Stringer. Um, Chris, thanks for agreeing to do this. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's a bit of a labour of love of mine. I'm a complete layman when it comes to human prehistory. Just a bit of a fascination, passion, obsession, whatever you want to call it, that's grown over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, Twitter gets a lot of bad rep, but actually I, I came across some of your tweets, realised what a, a knowledgeable person, knowledgeable prehistorian you must be, thought I must talk to this, this person. Then it kind of, getting guests on the podcast becomes a little akin to stalking, because I had to track down an email address that you might have to look at, um, which yeah, wasn't yeah. too hard to find. Uh, and I, I sent you an email and you, and you thankfully emailed back. Uh, so thank you again for coming on this. Um, I'm going to do my best to sum up a bit of an intro on you as a, as a, as a, as a prehistorian, as, as an anthropologist. Um, but you may have to fill in some gaps because this is a fair body of work, to be honest. I've, I've struggled to kind of, um, you know, summarise it. Uh, but the thing that stood out for me, you started off studying Neanderthals in primary school. I don't know. I mean, I don't think I studied Neanderthals in my primary school other than a few hairy PE teachers. You know, that's a bad gag, really. But I thought I'd get it out of their early doors. Um, you studied anthropology at, at UCL. Uh, P- Chris holds a PhD in anatomical science and DSC in anatomical science from Bristol University. Um, and you have been at the National History Museum since 1973 and are now currently... Yeah, yep. I even had a spell there in 1969, but the main job started in 73. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and you're the, the research leader in human origins there. That's right. Yeah. You've written more books than I've written shopping lists on the subject. And I didn't even realise when I'd secured you as a guest that I had one on my shelf, which was Homo Britannicus. My first question, um, because, you know, I've had a few guests on the podcast now, and one thing I've realised I haven't asked anyone is, what's the difference between an archaeologist and an anthropologist? Well, yeah, in fact, I call myself normally even longer paleoanthropologist. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So archaeologists, of course, study the, the physical remains left behind by humans. Uh, so that might be stone tools. It might be uh, what they were doing in a cave site, like burying their dead. Um, it might be a building if people were constructing buildings. So archaeologists study the physical evidence. And obviously, I, as a paleoanthropologist, uh, a paleontologist, really study the fossil evidence. So I study the evidence of the people themselves, their bodies, their teeth, uh, to an extent, their DNA, although I'm not an expert in that area. So, yes, so the difference is the archaeologists study what's left behind by the humans, in a sense, and I'm one of those who study the actual bits of the humans themselves. Okay, fantastic. I'm glad. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it, was, it struck me that it seemed that anthropology was a bigger thing in the US, but I don't know if that's just my surface perception of, of things. But um, 
apparently not. So in the uh, in the US, anthropology often encompasses archaeology, and there's social anthropology, of course, which is studying human societies and how they're structured and so on. So there's social anthropology, physical anthropology, which is the physical remains, which is sort of what I do, but I'm actually looking at the fossil remains, so that's why I call it paleoanthropology. So yeah, there are all these different groupings. Anthropology itself is a very broad subject, so basically the study of humans as a whole, all of the different aspects. But within that, paleoanthropology, ancient humans, and in particular, paleontology, fossil humans. Yeah. You've been at the National History Museum for a while, uh, it sounds like. I've always loved the idea of working at a museum, but then that's probably because my idea of working at a museum is sort of pottering around looking at really cool old stuff. Um, which I'd imagine when you actually get down to the nitty gritty is, is not your day to day. So what is your role at the museum now and how does that kind of look? Yeah. Each, each day? Well, obviously, with lockdown, the past year has been very unusual. I've actually only been in the museum a couple of times physically oh, wow. in the last year. So it's been very strange from that point of view. But if I was there, normally I would be pottering around, as you say, <laughs> looking at actual remains now and again. A lot of the time uh, gathering data about them, collaborating with other scientists to help gather data about them. Um, also, I'm involved with exhibition work. So we've got a human evolution exhibition there, which in the good times pre-COVID was getting over a million people a year were going in to see that exhibition. So, so yeah, so obviously exhibition work, outreach. Um, I'm expected to help raise funds for, for research work. And if we're lucky to actually employ extra people at the museum, uh, research assistants and postdoctoral assistants, PhD students. So yeah, so the job involves a lot of different things. Some of it, which is obviously the very exciting bit, is to actually look at fossil remains, ones we've got in the collection already, and we've got a few of those. Um, but also, if I get lucky, I, I'm asked to work with other teams who found new material. And that's obviously very exciting too. Do you ever get stuff in the museum that you kind of, I don't know, it's been in a drawer for a while. Someone's written a paper about it so 20, 30 years ago. You get it out, look at it in a different way and think, oh, hang on, we've, we've found something completely new out about this. Or Yeah, no, absolutely. So I was involved in, in a, a study recently, we published it a couple of months ago, on some teeth from Jersey. So in the Channel Islands, some teeth had been found there uh, more than 100 years ago and you know, about a dozen teeth and they were thought to be Neanderthals that was the standard description of them because they certainly had a few Neanderthal looking features but in the last five years I and some colleagues have taken a really detailed look at these teeth actually they're, they're in the Jersey Museum but they, we borrowed them brought them to London and our study showed that in fact first of all there were two individuals in there it wasn't just one individual there were two different sets of teeth at least because we compared them and their state of wear and their size and, and shape suggested there were two different individuals. And what was interesting is they did have Neanderthal features, but they also had features we normally find in modern humans. So mm. this is really unusual. And so we concluded in the paper that these probably were, if you like, mixed heritage individuals. They have part Neanderthal and part modern human ancestry, because of course now we know from DNA evidence that our ancestors did interbreed with the Neanderthals. And you and I have probably got around 2% Neanderthal DNA from that ancient interbreeding. So these teeth from Jersey 
completely reassessed now and it looks like they're they're even more interesting than just being neanderthals they may actually tell us about interbreeding events between those populations maybe forty-five thousand years ago amazing and and very kind of you to say only two percent most people with these sort of eyebrow ridges they tend to go a bit higher for me well of course we don't really know how hairy the neanderthals were that's one of the interesting things we can reconstruct the shape of the face pretty well but of course how much hair they had how much body hair they had yeah that's that's mostly guesswork at the moment one day from dna evidence we might get a bit of a better fix on it but at the moment unless we find a frozen one or a, or one in a peat bog at the moment a lot of that's guesswork about how hairy they were we, we simply don't know that at the moment one of the things i saw that you had tweeted out recently which kind of drew my attention was that there's been some finds in jerusalem um, that are the kind of most suddenly finds from the Anderthals. Uh, obviously, you've been, you've done a huge amount of work on the uh, out of Africa hypothesis. Neanderthals in Jerusalem, are we, do you think, that's a bit of conjecture, but are we thinking Neanderthals might have come out of Africa now or it's definitely evolved in Europe? Yeah, so first of all, on those finds, so yes, there was a, a single tooth, a molar tooth from a, a site called Shukba, which is mm. actually um, in, in Palestine. And it had been in our museum for a number of years. Before that, it had been in the Royal College of Surgeons for many years. And that was another specimen that we took a new look at. And we were able to show that it, that it was indeed a Neanderthal. Um, and we know the Neanderthals were in that region. So we knew already there were Neanderthals in, in places like Syria, Iraq, um, and, they, and in Israel. So there are a number of Neanderthals from Israel. So the Neanderthals extended into, the, into Western Asia quite often. Um, so we tend, obviously, we, the first discoveries were made in Europe, but they extended actually into Western Asia and even right across Asia at times. So there are Neanderthals over in southern Siberia. And actually, there's a fossil from China from a site called Marpar. And some of us think that could even be a Neanderthal right over in China. So at wow. times they extended a long way across Asia. Um, and at times, yes, this, this find from Shukba is, is the most southerly Neanderthal known so far. It's only a few hundred miles away from Cairo. So it does raise the possibility that Neanderthals might even have got into Africa at times. And your question was about the origin of Neanderthals. And of course, we, we don't know for sure where the whole lineage originated, where the split with our lineage occurred so geneticists estimate that we had a common ancestor with the neanderthals maybe around six hundred thousand years ago and we don't actually know whether that common ancestor lived in in africa maybe maybe in western asia maybe even in europe we don't know for sure but it would then imply that there was a dispersal to the areas where we find those groups later on so around six hundred thousand years ago there was a split between us and the neanderthals uh, at the beginning of our evolution. And then these other people, the Denisovans that we find in Siberia, we might come on to them in a minute. They then soon afterwards split off the Neanderthal lineage. So by about 300,000 years ago, we had three different groups of humans. Um, Homo sapiens had been evo was evolving in Africa. The Neanderthals were evolving in the Western part of Europe and Asia. And these Denisovans were evolving over in the Far East. And incredibly, even in Africa, at that time, there were two other kinds of humans, even in Africa. So uh, this species, Homo heidelbergensis, 
mm. um, which we know about from fossils from several locations in Europe and, and Africa. It looks like uh, some dating work I did on one of the fossils we've got at a museum in London from Broken Hill or Cabway in Zambia. We recently worked on the dating of that site, again, a find from 100 years ago, and that find is probably only 300,000 years old. So Homo heidelbergensis was still around, it seems, in Africa 300,000 years ago. Um, another weird species from South Africa called Homo naledi. Uh, we've only known about that in the last five years or so. So Homo naledi came from deep in a cave system. The remains were found not far from Johannesburg. And this was an even more primitive species with a much smaller brain, more primitive skeleton. That was also still around 300,000 years ago down in Southern Africa. And it gets even more complicated because over in Southeast Asia, there are these island populations of strange humans. So there was a, a species called Homo erectus, an ancient species that was probably, probably still around on the island of Java. There was a weird thing nicknamed the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis. This was a dwarf species on the island of Flores. And in the Philippines, we've just learned that there was another dwarf species of human. Uh, it's been called Homo luzonensis, actually in the Philippines. So, you know, five or six different kinds of humans around, um, possibly even within the last 100,000 years. So all that complexity experiments, if you like, in how to be human going on in different places, different populations, I would say, different species and we're the only ones left now so that is one of the outstanding questions what happened to all these other species you know why are we the only ones left um that is one of the big questions that that we are trying to answer now do you think um that was another thing i was going to ask you actually because you you posted something the other day which again piqued my interest particularly because um as someone that's you been into nutrition and training for quite a while. We rugby player and a bit of a gym rat. Um, I've got a few friends that are very sort of strong proponents of the, the paleo diets and the fasting and all that kind of stuff. And I, I saw you tweeted something about, well, the article was that a new study had shown that early humans um, around, I think, two million years ago, ate predominantly meat but you hadn't posted it as, as such you had posted it as may i think maybe an example of something being misinterpreted i'm, I'm not sure it seems unlikely um so i was really hinting i mean obviously this is what can happen that someone puts a headline on an article which is an oversimplification mm. of the article so of course if you read the article the situation's a bit more complex but yeah the the headline said something like you know uh our, our ancestors ate pretty much entirely meat the whole mm. time, you know. And what we know, we look at modern hunter-gatherers. So think of the, the Khoisan people in Southern Africa. Uh, think of native Australians. When you look at what they're eating, yes, of course, they, they, they will get meat and eat meat when they, when they can get it. But a lot of the time, they're eating plant resources. Uh, and they know where to find those plant resources. And they're what will often keep them going because you don't always get lucky hunting. You've got to have some backup foods for when the, when the hunters aren't successful. So yes, meat you know, was important in the human past, but the evidence is that it, it can't have been the exclusive food source uh, for humans at any time, really. Okay, there are modern people such as the Inuit who live you know, right up in the far north. They get 
very little access to plant resources. Uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, if they get lucky, they'll eat the stomach contents of, of an animal they kill and they <laughs> will actually get the plant resources out of that animal's stomach. Um, may not may not appeal to you or me, but that, that is <laughs> a way of getting being getting lucky. <laughs> yeah, that is a way of getting those those resources. Um, so, yes, but they're actually rare amongst hunter gatherers. You know, most of them. And we also assume in the past, most of them would have had a varied diet. Um, and that's obviously going to be by and large a healthier diet to have a varied diet. And so people, you know, we're omnivores. Our teeth suggest that we're omnivores. We eat basically anything we can get our hands on, of course, or get our mouths on, get our teeth on. Um, and even when you look at the calculus, so the stuff the dentist scrapes off your teeth when you go to see the hygienist, the, the tartar, um, when that sets hard, um, it, 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 we call it calculus. And that stuff on ancient teeth, if you analyze it, you can actually find particles of food in there. Wow. Um, and so when they've done that for Neanderthals, who of course are traditionally, you know, highly carnivorous, when you do that for the Neanderthals, you find these, this calculus contains clear signs of eating plant resources, little bits of seeds and grains, nuts, and so on. So mm -hmm. even the Neanderthals were, yes, they, they did eat meat, they were very very well equipped for hunting but they weren't just hunters they would eat plant resources as well yeah it seems to me that any species that's been able to adapt to different environments would have to have a real variety of diet to even you know be able to ex expand out into different environments yeah, yeah that's right i mean meat is, is a concentrated resource something like bone marrow is very good of course very rich source of food but um you know populations have got to have something else to eat if they can't get if they don't get lucky in the hunt and often uh, women would be experts at gathering and, and finding out where to dig up the, the, the roots and the tubers, um, which plants are good to eat, which ones aren't. Obviously, some seeds are uh, maybe highly poisonous to humans. Then um, often it's women who've got the skill to know how to collect those and to process them uh, to, to remove the toxins so that they too can be eaten. That was another thing I wanted to ask you about that format, because I would I would count myself as someone who has probably been drawn into prehistory more in the past by, say, a big headline, you know, say like, a, you know, that is the sort of headline that someone like me would read. But from there grows an interest and, and then you become more equipped at thinking, actually, maybe that headline is not 100 percent and you read more from different people. So it, it has a positive or had a positive impact for me. Um. Yeah. But do you think that outweighs the danger of people kind of, you know, having an agenda? I mean, again, the paleo diet for me, that is a ridiculous thing. As soon as you understand how long the Paleolithic was, you know, how can you say there's a diet for yeah, however many right. million years? It's, it's yeah. madness, really. Absolutely. And people living, as you've said already, in many different environments. So you can't just, you know, there isn't just one diet that these people had. So humans in the you know, 50,000 years ago, members of our species were living in very cold environments in the Arctic. They were living in deserts. They were living in rainforests. Uh, they were living in the grasslands. So, you know, there's no single paleo diet that covers all that range of environments. Mm. But do you think there is a, I mean, do you think that the pros outweigh the cons for kind of, not necessarily sensationalism, that's always going to be a bad thing, but the use of, 
I guess, formats like Twitter? Do you work a lot in public access? Do you have to kind of tread that balance to get people interested? And... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's very easy for a headline to, to, to amplify something correctly or wrongly. And that's mm. happened to me too. You know, you give a, you give a, a very considered interview to someone and in one line you say, on the other hand, it's possible that that, that. And that's what they then grab. And so all the rest of your, of your argument is, is demolished, it disappears, if you like, against that one sensational headline. So, mm. yeah, so it can happen. But, I mean, overall, you know, I'm on Twitter. I have been there for a number of years. I find it's useful. It's useful to get the message out there, but it's also useful to put in some, some corrections, some, you know, other sides of the, of the story. So I think it's good, but mm. of course, you know, there are trolls out there. There are highly negative people out there. You know, I've had some nasty, vicious insults. Really? Oh, of course. You know, if you're on Twitter and you've got a few thousand followers, you will attract attention, negative attention, and you will get abuse. And I've had that. You know, it happens. Oh, how yeah. awful. I mean, you can't, it's, it's funny because you kind of expect it for, I don't know, sports stars, celebrities and, and stuff like that, but you know, for someone who is a man of science, you would think, you know, that's, that's I'd like, limits, it, it but I guess no nice to think, It would be nice to think that, but of course there yeah. are so many different agendas out there, people wanting to push their own point of view, that if you, so for example, there's the famous case of Cheddar Man. Now, I don't know whether mm. you were going to get onto Cheddar Man. So this is a skeleton uh, we've got on display in the Natural History Museum in our Human Evolution Exhibition. Um, so it's kindly on loan from, from the Longleat Estate uh, because they own Cheddar Cave where it was found mm. in 1903. Um, so that skeleton is the most complete ancient skeleton we've got and it's about 10,000 years old and we know that because it's been directly dated by radiocarbon dating. So in the last few years um, we've managed to get DNA from that skeleton. We've got the whole genome of that individual and we published it a couple of years ago and of course, what was interesting was that the data suggested that this individual had a relatively dark skin, uh, dark hair, and probably blue eyes. Now, that's an interesting combination, of course, um, for a 10,000-year-old Brit. And um, we got the Kennis brothers. So these are uh, identical twins from, from uh, the Netherlands, and they're great artists, and they made a very nice three-dimensional head a head, a bust, if you like, of, of Cheddar Man reconstructed from the skull. And they put on this colouring of, of darker skin, blue eyes and dark hair. So that has become quite a, a famous uh, reconstruction. We've got that on show next to the skeleton in, in the museum at the moment, or when people can get back in to see it. Um, but of course, publicising that, again, led to a lot of comments pro and, and, and against. And so there are a number of people who simply won't believe that Cheddar Man couldn't have been white and that he, in fact, he was a white man. And this is all some kind of, you know, racist, uh, anti-racist agenda to make him black when he wasn't really black, uh, to suggest that the inhabitants of Europe at that time were, were darker skinned. And in fact, Cheddar Man's genome is very similar in that respect to genomes in Europe at the same time. So around 10,000 years ago, um, these late hunter-gatherers that, that lived across Europe. Um, the ones we mostly know about in, in, the, in the middle areas of Europe were 
the same as Cheddar Man. Darker skinned, blue eyes. So it was actually quite a common mixture. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a political agenda in that. That's what the DNA data suggested based on modern forensic, if you like, type comparisons. Now, if you read the paper carefully, it's about probabilities. Now, we don't know for certain what the skin color or the eye color of Cheddar Man was. This was just probabilities. And pretty certainly we can say that he would have had darker skin than modern day Europeans on average. Um, but that darker skin could have been possibly a North African kind of dark skin, could have been a, a Southern Asian dark skin, might have even been as dark as some Sub-Saharan African people. We didn't say how dark, but of course for the Kennis brothers, they had to choose one color for their reconstruction, of course, and they made it a sort of medium dark color. But of course you can even, even there, if you light that head in the right way, it will look a bit lighter skinned, <laughs> it will look a bit darker skinned. So anyway, yes, we had, uh, there was quite a debate on Twitter about this and some people still flatly won't believe that Cheddar Man could have been uh, dark skinned 10,000 years ago. So there we are. I mean, I would say that's surprising, but then I think some people believe that Bill Gates is a lizard trying to, you know, inject chips into all of us. So absolutely. <laughs> and the yeah, pyramids absolutely. were made by aliens. So yeah. So those ideas are out there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, on Twitter you you encounter them of course. And so you have to tread carefully. And yeah, my job is to try and get the the positive stories about human evolution out there, but also where necessary, try and clarify. And sometimes you have to give up on people and block them. You know, you can yeah. try a reason debate, but after a while, you know, if the venom continues, you've just got to block those people. Uh, life's too short really definitely yeah. and, and everyone's i guess it's a lot easier for everyone to pretend to be an expert on twitter so it's actually really important that actual experts such as yourself are out there you know fighting the cause and giving a bit of balance i think yeah. um, i'm prepared to admit that we don't know everything you know science is about progress and i've changed my mind on some important points and mm. a scientist should be able to do that so yeah, it's wrong to be arrogant and assume you know everything. That is not the message to get over. But obviously science, for me, is, is a testable thing. We test as we go along, we check, and as we get new data, yeah, we may have to adjust our hypotheses. So the work on Cheddar Man, of course, that's the current state of knowledge. As we get more information on, yeah, the, the, in, in the picture might change. But overall, on the current data, you know, we, we stand by our conclusions in that publication. And it's a really good example of what we were talking about, about that kind of um, dilution to, to public knowledge. Because, I mean, I saw the Channel 4 programme, I saw the headlines, but, but actually I, I would imagine the original research paper would have highlighted this is a probability study that suggests yeah, that's right. a high that's probability right. of this. Whereas yeah. the headline is, Cheddar Man was black. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, obviously you, you did lots of work on the out of Africa hypothesis and now that's changed slightly to a multi-regional hypothesis can you explain a little bit about because i've not i don't think i've heard of the multi-regional as much I, I don't know as much about that yeah so yeah so these these are quite complex questions but a bit of ancient history so when i was doing my early research on us and neanderthals and so on it was really in this whole framework about where our species originated where did modern humans come from and there was a view around at the time that the Neanderthals in Europe were the direct ancestors of modern people. And if we had a good enough fossil record in Europe, some people 
who believed in something called regional continuity. So for those people, if we had a complete fossil record in Europe from, let's say, 100,000 years down to 10,000 years ago, we would have Neanderthal fossils at 100,000 years. And then through time, as we had the fossils, they would gradually start looking more and more like modern humans. Mm. And there'd be this gradual transition. So the brow ridge will get smaller. The nose would get smaller. The chin would start developing, you know. And, it's not happened and here. Get Neanderthal <laughs> turning into a modern human in Europe. And the same thing was argued to have happened more or less everywhere around the world. The ancient people in each area gradually evolved into modern people in the same areas. So if you looked at fossils in Java, in Indonesia, they were supposed to be the ancestors of modern native Australians. And again, you'd see this fossil record going through from one to the other. In China, the species Homo erectus in China, like Peking man, that would have evolved gradually into modern East Asian people. And in Africa, you see a similar feature, similar sequence from primitive humans through to modern humans in each area. And for the multi-regional model, these were all interbreeding with each other across that range. So the people in Europe will be interbreeding with the people in Western Asia, and the people in Western Asia will be interbreeding with the people in Africa, and so on. So there would be basically the evolution of one species for nearly two million years. That's the multi-regional model. Now, my PhD work and what came after was, was some of the work that questioned that, because when I looked at the European Neanderthals, I, I thought they were very different from, from the modern humans that came afterwards, hmm. too different to be the ancestors. And I couldn't see any sign of them gradually changing into, into modern humans. For me, modern humans came into Europe rather suddenly. And then after that, soon after that, the Neanderthals disappeared. So this also, that model known as out of Africa, if, if we place the origin in Africa. So on that model, and that's the model I have obviously supported and developed, helped to develop over the last 30, 40 years, modern humans evolved only in one place, which was Africa. And then within the last 100,000 years, modern humans came out of Africa and started to spread to wherever we find them today. And as they spread, they encountered these other humans that were already living outside of Africa. Now, my view used to be that, yes, when we met the Neanderthals, maybe there was a bit of interbreeding because closely related species can in fact often interbreed. So I always thought it was possible there was a bit of interbreeding between us and Neanderthals, but I also thought that it was not normal behavior. It was on such a small scale. That was 40 or 50,000 years ago. We would never find evidence of it today. So for me, by, by, by all practical purposes, I said we're pretty well, pr pretty well close to 100% recent African origin. And of course, that, that was wrong. So we know from the genetic data, as I mentioned already, that uh, there was some interbreeding with Neanderthals. Over in Eastern Asia and Southeast Asia, there was some interbreeding with the Denisovans. So populations today are not 100% recent African origin. So if we look at the genes of people all around the world, we're more than 90% recent African origin, but it's not, it's not 100%. So I've had to modify my view. Mm. And within Africa, yes, even the African origin seems to be more complex. I've mentioned already that there were different populations in Africa, some different species in my view, but even within Homo sapiens, our evolving lineage, it spread widely in Africa and you had different local evolutions in different bits of Africa. 
And so at times when the Sahara Desert was huge, as it is today, populations in North Africa were separated from each other and they evolved in their own directions. But then sometimes the Sahara Desert actually gets green. Uh, you have lakes and rivers all the way across it. And then at those times, populations could spread and actually get into contact with each other. So in Africa, this kept happening in different parts of Africa. So we get sort of something like the multi-regional model, but purely within Africa for the evolution of our own species. Uh, some people don't like that term. And so we now perhaps prefer to talk about the pan-African model. Okay. Uh, because that avoids confusing it with the multi-regional model, the original one, which was a global model. So that yeah. model has been disproved. But what we've got is mostly out of Africa. Uh, that's what the geneticist, I think, Svante Parbo coined that term, mostly out of Africa. And I think that's probably the best way to term it. Mm. I, I could, you, you could re-term it the out of Africa and dabbling in other species model. Yeah, it sounds out, like that. out of Africa and hybridization. That's what yes. Walter Breuer, the uh, German anthropologist, called it. Out of, he called it out of Africa and hybridization. And that's another way of talking about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, obviously, as, as someone who you know works so closely with the actual finds and the, and the, the skeletal remains, and, and I guess dealing as much in fact as you can, do you ever allow yourself that kind of? I guess as, as a writer, you have to that that kind of wonderingment. That's a word um, about what that was like. Whether 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 we were very. Um, culturally interlinked with Neanderthals, whether it was just um, a chance encounter, whether it was something a bit more sinister, like invasion or war, or, I mean, unfortunately, themes of rape have quite a strong historical context. There's so many ways that that could have happened. It's, it's almost hard to, to pin down. What's your kind of instinct? Yeah. So, yeah, so that is obviously, again, one of the questions is how this happened. And it happened not only in Europe with Neanderthals, but over in the Far East as well with these Denisovans. And it may even have happened in Africa with some other populations there that I mentioned were around in Africa. So um, how it happened, obviously, at the moment, we, we simply have guesswork for it. We can look mm. at what happens in, in modern humans today. We can look at what happens in, in our ape relatives. And sometimes modern hunter-gatherers uh, if there's a, a bunch of males uh, who run out of females, they will sometimes raid a neighbouring group and steal their women, kidnap them. And that can happen. Chimpanzees do that. Sometimes a chimpanzee group of males will go and steal some female chimps from a neighbouring group. Um, so that could have happened for, for some of these interbreeding events with the Neanderthals. Um, there could have been adopting orphan babies. That can happen too, of course. Um, maybe Neanderthal parents died, perhaps they were even killed, and then these baby Neanderthals were left, and the modern human said, oh, look at those lovely little baby Neanderthals, let's adopt them. And so they, they went into the group and then grew up in the group and obviously would have then bred within that group. Uh, and at the other extreme, yes, there's the possibility of actual peaceful, relatively peaceful encounters where these groups actually met and exchange partners. And some people think that's what could have happened. So all of those are possibilities and we simply don't know which, and it could have been a mixture. So maybe in some places it was one of those possibilities and in another period, another time period, it was one of the other possibilities. So it could have been a mixture. Mm. Eventually the geneticists should be able to tell 
a bit more about the mating because eventually they should be able to tell what was the proportion of male or female Neanderthals that contributed to the modern human DNA. So that should That's be possible right. at some stage. So mm -hmm. if it was mediated maybe through mainly through females, that maybe might support the capturing female idea. Uh, on the other hand, if it was some Neanderthal men hanging around the outside of a modern human camp, and now and again, the, the modern human women went out to the periphery and had sex with the Neanderthals, <laughs> that would be mainly a male Neanderthal mating into modern humans. Okay. So eventually it will be possible to look at those possibilities. Um, we're not there yet, though. And for the Denisovan matings, too, we don't know how those happened either. Yeah. Doesn't sound great. I mean, that's going to be a, that could be another one that could get you some trolls. Like, because if you come out with the headline, you know, male, only early male humans pillaged Neanderthal women, or early human females played about a bit with Neanderthal men, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not going to write the headline for you. That's so. yeah, yeah. This is <laughs> and equally the 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 actual meeting of these groups and exchanging partners that even that could have happened too. Mm. And there is some evidence for some people at least of cultural exchanges between the groups um, so modern humans about 40 to 45,000 years ago were making necklaces um, of animal teeth with with holes drilled in them necklaces mm -hmm. or pendants and we find those in their sites the interesting thing is around the same time some of the last neanderthals were making comparable things they were also using animal teeth to make jewelry so did one group actually copy it from the other did they even exchange goods between the two groups um what's interesting there is that i think you know 20 years ago i would have said to you well it probably was modern humans were the inventive species and we were we were the ones who the neanderthals would have copied from um but now there's evidence that the neanderthals were doing this quite a long way back in time so uh there's a site called krapina in croatia um spelt with a k uh, krapina and that site um, has got eagle talons um, which look like they've been used for jewellery and that site is well over a hundred thousand years old so there's no likelihood that that was a copy from modern humans it looks like the Neanderthals were developing their own jewellery if you like through time and there's some evidence that Neanderthals uh, had a special attraction to bird feathers uh, we've got bird skeletons that have been cut in a way that it looks like they were taking the feathers off. So right. again, that's something which Neanderthals themselves did probably without the influence of, of modern humans being around. But there is some evidence, as I say, that the groups were in contact with each other, not just genetically, but probably culturally with the spread of some ideas between them. Amazing. I can't stop thinking. There's not a cave in Crappino, is there? Uh, it's actually an open site. It's it's uh, the site has been mostly excavated away, but not actually a cave. No. You wouldn't want it called crap in a cave. That's the you know that's uh, what yeah, I've covered. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's. <laughs> you did rather tantalisingly give away that there has been some really recent um, papers uh, put together about some particularly interesting finds. So I I don't want to you know take up too much of your time. I would love it though, Chris, if you were able to tell me whatever you can about. That these recent yes um, well in fact the, the the papers i mentioned which are, are coming out now as we speak are, are two papers about dna from early early modern humans in in europe central and eastern europe so basically these two papers being published in two separate journals but 
simultaneously because they kind of amplify each other's story really so what there are is from a, a site called Zlati Kun uh, in the Czech Republic so there's a, a woman's skull and partial skeleton that was found there well 70 odd years ago and that's been sitting around in a museum in 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 the Czech Republic and it was known to be a stone age woman but it was thought to be only maybe 15,000 years old but scientists have looked at the DNA from that skull and it looks like the DNA is really very early Homo sapiens. So the likelihood is that this woman's skull and skeleton are actually about 45,000 years old. So much older than we thought. So really one of the oldest Homo sapiens fossils we've got from Europe. And what's interesting is that this woman's genome shows the signs of interbreeding with Neanderthals a few thousand years earlier. Um, and the DNA is in quite large chunks. So when you you know, when, when you know, your parents meet and, and match and give rise to you as a child, your DNA, your DNA, of course, is about 50% from your mother and about 50% from your father. But as you then have children and your children have children, each generation, that DNA gets shuffled up a bit and broken into smaller segments that originally came you know, in large chunks from your mother and in large chunks from your father. But as time goes on, that DNA gets shuffled around. So we can look at the genomes in this woman's skull from about 45,000 years ago. And the chunks of Neanderthal DNA are quite large. So they've got in, you know, fairly recently. She's one of the oldest modern humans. And she's close to that interbreeding event with modern humans, the main interbreeding event that we think happened probably between 50 and 60,000 years ago. So that interbreeding event we think happened in Western Asia and the signs of it can be found right across Asia, right down into Southeast Asia and Australia, over in the Americas, Native Americans also have around 2% Neanderthal DNA. So there was, so we think modern humans came out of Africa in a, in a major exit around 60,000 years ago. They met some Neanderthals in Western Asia and then as they spread out, those populations took that little bit of Neanderthal DNA with them. And that has come down to us today at the level of about 2%. Okay, so the Zelati Kun woman's skull shows that interbreeding event. So she's close to that original interbreeding event. Um, but what's interesting is when we look at the other paper, so the other paper has studies of some fragments from a site in uh, Bulgaria called Batrakiro. So this is a cave site. And there are a number of bits of bones and teeth of early Homo sapiens, again, from around 45,000 years ago. But interestingly, in these ones, they do show the sign of that more ancient interbreeding event with Neanderthals. But they also show signs of very recent interbreeding within the previous few generations. So within, within you know, 100 or 200 years, they had extra interbreeding. So already you've got signs of at least two interbreeding events. One that happened before 50,000 years ago, which was, if you like, the major one that spread all around the old, all around the old world outside Africa. But with these remains in Romania from Batrachiro, oh, sorry, from Bulgaria, let's get it right. This is Bulgaria. From Bulgaria, from Batrachiro, you've got actually evidence of extra little interbreeding events locally with the local Neanderthals. So it obviously was a complex thing. We, we did a bit of interbreeding with Neanderthals, probably more than we've managed to pick up so far. So the original model was one main interbreeding event, 
more than 50,000. Now we're picking up local signs. And it could be that, you know, th this is, in a sense, the local Neanderthals being absorbed into those modern human populations. Wow. So it's possible that the extinction of the Neanderthals physically, and of course they've not gone completely extinct because a bit of their DNA lives on in us today, but the physical extinction of the Neanderthals might have been as much as that they were actually mopped up into those modern human populations. And they hence just disappeared. They lost their identity because they were being mopped up into these modern human populations. So if that kept happening, eventually the Neanderthals, perhaps in smaller numbers, just disappeared by being absorbed into that bigger pool of modern humans. So it's a kind of different way of looking. You know, we didn't, we didn't kill them off. We didn't have warfare with them. Uh, maybe we just absorbed them out of existence. That's a possible scenario now based on this new data. Wow, that sounds like quite a big step because the, because of all those different possibilities that could have happened. That's quite a yeah. strong case for that absorption. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, again, we need more data. And this is, of course, only evidence from one bit of Eastern Europe. Mm. And, of course, we don't have any idea of what happened to the Neanderthals, the last ones in, in Western Asia. If they were over in Siberia, what happened to the last ones there? When did they die out? And then there's these Denisovans who we think were widespread in Eastern Asia and Southeast Asia. They disappeared as well. And again, we've got no, we've got much less fix on where they died out and what caused their extinction or their disappearance. But again, you know, if there was interbreeding with modern humans, maybe even they were mopped up into the modern human populations as they went into these territories and expanded. Maybe they mopped up these local populations and you may say well why did modern humans why would the modern humans want to interbreed with these local people what we find of course is that that interbreeding did have some advantages genetically for the for the for the modern human populations so coming out of africa our ancestors would have had no natural immunity to the local diseases outside of africa in asia and europe and southeast asia whereas the local populations of neanderthals and denisovans would have evolved local adaptations. So their immune systems were equipped to deal with the local diseases and pathogens. By interbreeding with them, we got a quick fix to our immune system. We picked up some of their immune defenses and they became part of our own immune defenses. So that was good news 40 or 50,000 years ago. And things like that probably, if you like, helped the interbreeding event because the populations that had that bit of Neanderthal would have had better disease resistance to mm. the local diseases. So they would have actually prospered uh, with those extra bits of Neanderthal DNA. Now, there's swings and roundabouts. So having that Neanderthal DNA also has some downsides. So there are some people with autoimmune diseases, um, things like Crohn's disease, biliary cirrhosis. Some of those are places where the immune system turns on itself in a sense where oversensitized our immune system actually turns on itself in our own bodies some of those are also linked with the presence of neanderthal dna so there were pluses and minuses and a lot of that neanderthal dna was selected away within a few generations so that would have been if you like probably negative dna in terms of our genome but bits of it were retained and even amplified in our immune systems in our skin and hair there are clear signs of Neanderthal DNA being active. Yeah. Wow. 
amazing stuff Chris I'm I'm conscious of your time and, and I know you've got to, to prepare to kind of explain that to the, to the press later so um I do I do have these kind of quick fire questions so I will throw them at you you are well within your rights to bat them off and say no thank you all right. <laughs> but it's a bit of a tradition all right um, or it has become one um okay so the first one this one never ends up being quick fire but if you could go back and visit one period of human prehistory just to know exactly what it looked like and what was going on where mm. would you go oh yeah that is a tough one well i think okay. one of the places i want to go is the time we've been talking about okay and see how those neanderthal and modern human populations were meeting each other how they were interacting was it friendly was it hostile how do those interbreeding events happen i don't want to actually witness them we don't need to go too far but <laughs> in principle how you know what was happening on the ground between those two populations at that time that would be a fascinating thing to to look at yeah okay you'd have to pick you'd have to know when to go wouldn't you i suppose so if you went to where this find was that, that's come out recently then that'd be a good starting point well Bulgaria, yes yeah, so bulgaria um would be one place the bachikiro site that cave site and denisova cave the actual home site of the denisovans in siberia at times that had neanderthals in it at other times denisovans they even interbred with each other as well and then later on homo sapiens were there as well so that, you know, if I could just hover outside Denisova Cave for a few thousand years, that would also be an interesting thing to see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. You want to stay there for a thousand years, that might be a push. Okay, let's say then, so here's the other one, which is a bit of a, a dilemma. You can go, I've, I've invented a time machine, you can go back to whenever you want, but it's a one-trip offer. You can't come back, it's a one-way ticket. Would you risk it? Would you, you know, you can't tell anyone about it, it's, but is the, is the, is yeah. the first to know. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if I could choose my circumstances exactly, I might be inclined to, but, you know, I might say, well, you know, going back to some part of ancient Rome, but what if I was a slave? You know, yeah. so that might not be, you know, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. So I, I think I'll stick with the present day. Uh, and we've got enough challenges at the present day to deal with. So, yeah, I think the present day, I'll, I'll, I'll stick where I am now. 100%. If you did go back then, is that what's one item you would take that you think would be most useful? Cool. Yes. Well, not much use having a mobile phone, is it? That's not going to help you. No, um, I can't do yeah. that. Um, one thing to really help me. Yeah. Um, Lighter. I mean, I get that. You probably. Uh, yeah. Very tough because, um, you know, particularly if you went back to the Stone Age, you know, what's going to help you then? Um, a, a very good defensive weapon, I suppose, yeah. people to have, not just from other people, but from the dangerous wild animals that were around. You know, I a car would be pretty handy, actually. Well, a car, but then you know, where are you going to get your petrol from? Uh, That's true. Yeah. yeah so I, I think, yeah, probably some useful defensive weapon would be um, a first requirement anywhere I was going in the past. Yes. I, I mean, a modern steel axe would probably not only be very useful, but very impressive to everyone. You know, they're still yes, kind of yes. using. If you could hang on to it, of course, and someone didn't take it off you and use it themselves. That's true. That's true. Which that's would be true. another issue. Yeah. See, that's why I'd go for the lighter because I'd tell them it was magic and they'd have to sort of yes. build yeah, a yeah. temple for yeah. me. Sam yeah. Henge, that would sort of be cool. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. and this is the last one where you might want to, you know, you might not want to answer. Um, but you go back, you know, you're, you're quite lonely out there. 
there's one other population of Neanderthals. You know, there's an attractive young Neanderthal woman. Do you think, do you, do you think, would you go there? Would you date a Denisovan? Would you meander with a Neanderthal? Well, again, I think I'd need to get an answer to my question first about whether the encounters are mainly friendly or not. Yes, that's because, true. You know, <laughs> let's face it, if modern humans were really stealing the Neanderthal women, then I don't think those Neanderthal men would feel very well disposed towards me, would they? So no. I think I'd need to know. If we were having friendly encounters, then I'd be a bit happier about it. Okay. But I think we need, to, we need to get that question answered first. Very honourable answer. So you don't want to upset anyone, you know. You'll, you'll do whatever's socially yeah, acceptable. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, I've taken up far too much of your time. Thank you ever so much. I could literally talk to you for hours and days, but I don't think you'd get that much out of it, just me. Um, but with that in mind, is there anything, you know, because we do get a few listens, it's growing all the time. Um, is there anything that you'd like to direct people's attention to? Anything that you can get from this? You know? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, obviously you've mentioned already Twitter. So I'm on Twitter and people can, can find me there. Um, the museum resources, of course, are great. Hopefully we'll be open again to the public soon and people can come in and see that human evolution exhibition. They can see Cheddar Man. They can see our original Neanderthal fossils, uh, for example. That will be great. But also we've got a good website with mm. you know lots of resources on there about early humans. And uh, my colleague Louise Humphrey and I wrote a book uh, published in the last couple of years called Our Human Story. Mm. And I would recommend that as well uh, as a good, well-illustrated uh, intro to, to human evolution. It's on my shopping list already as of today. Um, but like, I can definitely recommend Homo Britannicus for anyone who's interested in uh, oh, Britain-focused yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. human story chris thank you ever so much i will, I will let you go um and maybe one day when we're a bit bigger and it's there's more in it for you in terms of exposure not that you need it um i can persuade you to come back on and talk to me again um, right yeah i look forward to that we can look forward to the post-covid era let's hope definitely yeah. well i've already got the national history museum on my it's a long list, to be fair, because it's been a couple of years now since we've been only yeah. the house. So, you know, but it is on there, quite high up on there as well. Um, but yeah, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, for any comments, feedback, questions, potential guests, uh, the email address is bunchofapes at gmail.com. You can find us on uh, Twitter, uh, on SoundCloud, iTunes. Yeah, just search Bunch of Apes. It usually comes up. There's not many things called that. Uh, and I've been your host, Sam Harris, and I've been very excited to be joined by my wonderful guest, Chris Stringer. Thank you all for listening.